This evening we're looking at one verse, well actually less than one verse, about half a verse, from 1 John chapter 3 and verse 4. If you don't know where 1 John is, start at the back of your Bible and uh, work backwards. It's the fourth from last book of the Bible. 1 John chapter 3 and verse 4. And as I said, only half a verse. The second half of 1 John 3, 4, it says this. Sin is lawlessness. This is the word of God. Let's pray together. Oh Lord, we ask your help as we consider what sin is tonight. We pray that you would instruct us, inform our minds, convict our hearts. Help us, we pray, believers and unbelievers alike. And it's in Jesus' name that we ask this blessing. Amen. When we use words like guilt and reconciliation, and repentance we have to be talking about sin because without sin there is no guilt without sin there is no need for reconciliation without sin there's no need for repentance so whenever we use words like guilt reconciliation repentance we have to be talking about sin what is sin what is it that causes guilt? What is it that necessitates reconciliation? This is the theme of my sermon tonight, and we're going to explore it in two steps. First, looking generally at the theology of the Apostle John, and secondly, looking at the explicit statement from the Apostle John, which I read a moment ago from 1 John chapter 3, and verse 4. And then we'll finish with some applications. So let's begin by examining sin in the theology of the Apostle John. And just a reminder, when we look at John's theology, or Paul's theology, or the theology of the Gospels, we're not looking merely at one person's opinion. We're looking at God's truth in each and every case. But the reason that it's sometimes helpful to look at, for example, Paul's doctrine of justification or whatever is because one biblical author brings an emphasis or an area of specialty to the table that others don't. And returning now to our main flow of thought, one of John's obvious emphases is love. John's gospel has Jesus talking about love more than in any other gospel. Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me. John chapter 8 and verse 42. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, 
you also are to love one another. By all this, by this, pardon me, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. John 13, 34. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. John 14, 15. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. John 14, 21. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words. John 14, 23 and 24. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. These things I command you so that you will love one another. John 15, 9 and 10, 12 and 13 and 17. I have made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. John 17, 26. All of those and several others are found in John's gospel. There is an unmistakable emphasis on love in John's record of Jesus' ministry. Curiously, the great commandments are absent from the Gospel of John. Here we have them from Mark, though. And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another. And seeing that Jesus answered them well, asked Jesus, which commandment is the most important of all? Jesus answered, the most important is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. You can see that there's harmony then between John and the other gospel writers. It's not as if John is saying something different from the other gospel writers, even if he chooses to record certain things that the other gospel writers didn't and to omit certain things that they included. The other gospel writers tell us that love is the most important duty, the most important lifestyle, the most important commandment. And so does John though not in those exact words. And after emphasizing love so much in his gospel account, John continues to emphasize love as the central Christian duty and characteristic in his first epistle, 1 John. 
Whoever keeps Christ's word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. This is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another, just as he has commanded us. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we obey his commandments. That's a selection of verses taken from the very short epistle of 1 John, five chapters, and all of that comes from within it. Again, the emphasis is unmistakable. John strongly, in both his gospel and in his epistles, strongly emphasizes love. It's almost too silly of a question to ask if John considers love to be a Christian duty. Of course he does. He agrees with the words of Jesus recorded by the other gospel writers that love is the most important Christian duty. John never says explicitly that love is the most important Christian duty, but the primacy that he gives to it shows how central it is to his thinking, how inseparable it is from real, genuine Christianity. Likewise, John never says explicitly that sin is lovelessness, 
but he might as well have. His schema assumes that lovelessness is sin, and more than that, that righteousness is love. In harmony with John, Jesus teaches that if, hypothetically, all someone ever did was love God and neighbor, that he would earn eternal life. Listen to Luke chapter 10, verses 25 to 28. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put Jesus to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. Of course, no one can do that ever since Adam's fall into sin. And even if we could begin to do so perfectly from today henceforth, we would still bear yesterday's guilt. And we would miss heaven by a mile. But hypothetically, all that is needed for righteousness in God's eyes is love for God and neighbor. Those are Jesus' words. And didn't you hear that same emphasis in John as I read that selection of texts from both his gospel and his first epistle? Truly, in Jesus' thinking and in John's thinking, all we really need to do is love. If police loved the constituents of their precinct, and if the constituents of the precinct loved the police, if the rich loved the poor, and the poor loved the rich, if the white loved the black, and the black loved the white, and so on and so forth, if we all loved each other, everything would be okay. And stated this way, this is actually a really popular teaching of Scripture today. Hardly anyone will quibble with it. If you wore a t-shirt that says, love everyone, the masses will applaud you. But the tension comes in, and the disapproving looks come in, and the anger comes in, and the conflict comes in, when we begin trying to approach a definition of love. When I say to you, what you did was unloving, and you defend yourself saying, no, it was not unloving. When one person says, silence is unloving, you need to speak at this time. And yet another person says, you need to be silent at this time. You don't have a right to speak at this time. The loving thing to do would be silent. When one person says love demands such and such an action, and another says no, love does not demand such and such an action, this is where the simple duty to love one another becomes complex. This is where disagreements arise. This is where it becomes obvious that definitions vary as to what love even is. 
So all you need to do is love God and neighbor. But what is love? We've already seen that sin is lovelessness. And the connection between sin and lovelessness is so close that the two words are actually coterminous, which is just a fancy way of saying that the words mean the same thing. They are interchangeable. This is why Jesus can say that you will go to heaven if you only love. If you love perfectly, there's no sin. Righteousness is therefore the same thing as love, and lovelessness is therefore the same thing as sin. Now let's consider sin in the explicit statement from the Apostle John in 1 John 3, 4, which I read earlier. Sin is lawlessness. Or as the Baptist Catechism has it, sin is any transgression of or lack of conformity unto the law of God. In other words, sin is doing what God's law forbids or failing to do what God's law requires. So John is at least teaching that breaking God's law in the aforementioned ways is sin. But does he mean more than that? We know that sin and lovelessness are coterminous. If sin and lovelessness are coterminous, are sin and lawlessness also coterminous? For the sake of time, I'm going to turn to Luke 18, verses 18 to 20 for the answer, instead of reasoning it out from John's writings. And here is Jesus' teaching. A ruler asked Jesus, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, let's skip a little bit here. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and your mother. Do you see what Jesus is saying about the law? I.e. the Ten Commandments? Jesus is saying the same thing about the law in Luke 18 as he said about love in Luke 10. If, hypothetically, all someone ever did was keep God's law, he would earn eternal life. Again, we know that no one can do that ever since Adam's fall into sin. And also, again, we know that even if from today, henceforth, we kept God's law perfectly, we would still bear yesterday's guilt and miss heaven by a mile. But hypothetically, all that is needed for righteousness in God's eyes is to keep the law, according to Jesus in Luke 18. The question in Luke 18, what must I do to inherit eternal life, receives the answer from Jesus, you know the commandments. Do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, honor your father and mother, an obvious reference to the Ten Commandments. So Jesus does the same thing with both love in Luke 10 and the law in Luke 18. 
He says either one, done perfectly, will merit eternal life. Therefore, there can be no imperfection or incompleteness in either standard. So what we find is that sin and lovelessness are coterminous, which again just means that those words mean the same thing. Another way of saying sin is lovelessness. Another way of saying lovelessness is sin. And sin and lawlessness are coterminous, which means that those words mean the same thing. Another way of saying sin is lawlessness, and another way of saying lawlessness is sin. Therefore, reason this out with me. If sin means the same thing as lovelessness, and if sin means the same thing as lawlessness, then lovelessness means the same thing as lawlessness. So the apostle of love, as many have called John, is teaching us in 1 John 3, 4, what love is, what love looks like. What we have in 1 John 3, 4, is a definition of sin and lovelessness. And so by extension and implication, a definition also of love. If sin is lovelessness, and sin, as we're told in 1 John 3, 4, is also lawlessness, then love is the keeping of God's law. Now we are in a position to evaluate claims about what love requires or what lovelessness is. If someone says that love equals A, but A is against God's law, then it is incorrect to say that love equals A. Likewise, if someone says B is unloving, but God's law requires B, that B is not unloving. If we say, therefore, that someone is guilty, then we must do more than generally accuse them of such, and just throw out guilty. We must do even more, in fact, than simply accuse them of being unloving. We must demonstrate, if we were to call someone guilty and unloving, we must demonstrate which commandment they have broken. If they have not broken any commandments, they have not been unloving and are not therefore guilty. If we say that reconciliation is necessary, we are implying that there has been sin. Let us be specific then about the sin and show how what has happened has been unloving and unlawful in God's eyes. And if we call people to repentance, let us show specifically where they have violated God's law. Otherwise, there is nothing to repent for, for sin is lawlessness. Did the supposedly guilty party 
have another God in the place of the one true God? Did the supposedly guilty party adjust their conception of the one true God to suit their own fancies? Did the supposedly guilty party fail to reverence the one true God? Did they break his Sabbath day? Did they fail to honor genuine God-appointed authorities? Did they take life wantonly or fail to preserve it by all reasonable means? Did they compromise God's sexual ethic of one married man and woman? Did they fail to respect private property? Did they pervert the execution of justice in any way, including by untruth? Did they fail to be content with what God has providentially dispersed to them? If so, so be it. Point it out. Make it clear. But if none of the above, then there is no sin. There is no lack of love. There is no guilt. There is no need for reconciliation or repentance. So all we need to do, according to Jesus, according to John, all we need to do is love. But we need to define love properly. Love is the fulfillment of God's law. Sin is lovelessness, which is in turn lawlessness. Where God's law has not been broken, failure to love has not occurred, and therefore sin has not occurred. But where God's law has been broken, failure to love has occurred, and sin has occurred. What does all of this mean for us? Let's finish with some applications. And I will give you three specifically. The first is that others are not always guilty for what you think they are. Others are not always guilty for what you think they are. It's easy to criticize others. It's especially easy to criticize others when other people are doing it too. Imagine that you worked a whole day and got paid the same amount as a fellow employee who showed up at two o'clock in the afternoon. Your coworkers started complaining that your employer was unjust and unloving. It would be easy for you to jump on that bandwagon and begin doing the same. But which of God's laws in that case would your employer have broken? Thou shalt not steal? Assuming he paid you what you had agreed to be paid, there's no guilt there. What other law would you turn to in indictment of your employer? Jesus told a story similar to this in Matthew chapter 20, verses 1 to 15. For the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. After agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard. 
And going out about the third hour, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And to them, he said, you go into the vineyard too. And whatever is right, I will give you. So they went. Going out again about the sixth hour and the ninth hour, he did the same. And about the eleventh hour, he went out and found others standing and said to them, why do you stand here idle all day? They said to him, because no one has hired us. He said to them, you go in the vineyard too. And when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last up to the first. And when those hired about the eleventh hour came, each of them received a denarius. Now when those hired first came, they thought they would receive more, but each of them also received a denarius. And on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house, saying, These last worked only one hour, and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. But he replied to them, Friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give this last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? If this happened today, some people would be out protesting this employer's actions, accusing him of being unjust and unloving. But ironically, they'd be protesting God and would be incurring guilt themselves for the violation of the third covenant, or pardon me, the third commandment, which is reverence for God. Others are not always guilty of what you think they are. You need to think about what laws of God others have broken before you accuse them of being guilty. The second application that I would like to make is that you're not always guilty for what others think you are. We've all heard stories of wrongful convictions. This year there was a contestant on America's Got Talent named Archie Williams. And he spent 36 years in a Louisiana prison for a crime he didn't commit. If you haven't seen the clip where he auditions on the reality show, it's worth watching. It's very moving. Anyway, he wasn't guilty. He wasn't guilty for what others thought he did. It was an unjust, sinful conviction as false witness was born and false witness was admitted in the court of law. But false witness is also born and admitted when certain persons are accused of being unloving or unjust apart from any lawlessness on their part. When the accused is attributed with guilt Apart from any action he himself has taken, it is false witness, and the accused is not guilty. So by all means, listen to criticism, search your heart, 
your words, your actions, and see if there is anything out of step with the law of God. But don't assume you're guilty for anything and everything you're accused of anytime and every time you are, in fact, accused. So first, others may not be guilty for what you think they are. You may not be guilty for what others think you are. But that being said, and thirdly, we are all guilty of something and some things at the end of the day. The point of all this is simply to define sin precisely so that we can have meaningful conversations about guilt and reconciliation and repentance, which are all real and important concepts. The point of this is not to ease anyone's conscience of real guilt, nor is it to stop legitimate conversations about real guilt. Others are not always guilty for what you think they are, and you're not always guilty for what others think you are. But we are all guilty of some things at the end of the day. Therefore, we should be open to reason when approached by someone accusing us of sin. We should be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to become angry. We should evaluate ourselves by God's law and see if indeed there is lovelessness and lawlessness in our hearts, words, or actions. And where necessary, we should feel the burden of the guilt and we should repent and be reconciled to those whom we have sinned against. And we should deal with the guilt, seeking forgiveness from God. Sometimes we are not guilty for that which we're accused of. Sometimes others are not guilty for the things that we accuse them of. But whenever we are guilty, or others are guilty, the just penalty for our sin is hell. And that is a serious matter. We need, therefore, to get forgiveness from God, lest we burn for our sins. We sang earlier, though I got tangled up in the words on my music sheet during this verse, we sang earlier, Ye who think of sin but lightly, nor suppose its evil great, here, that is, at the cross, here you may view its nature rightly. Here its guilt may estimate. Mark the sacrifice appointed. See who bears the awful load. Tis the word, the Lord's anointed, Son of man and Son of God. The crucifixion of Christ is the only alternative to our own punishment in hell. Our lovelessness is sin. Our lawlessness is sin. 
and it deserves the wrath of God. And we will either bear it ourselves in hell or find that Jesus Christ has borne it for us on his cross. See, Jesus came to fulfill the demands of the law, to live a loving life in the place of those who are loveless and therefore sinners. Jesus came to live a law-keeping life in the place of those who are lawless and therefore sinners. Jesus came also to bear the punishment for the breach of the law that sinners deserved. The punishment for the lovelessness of sinners that we deserved. By faith in Jesus, looking away from our own lovelessness to his loving, looking away from our own lawlessness to his law-keeping, looking away from any attempts to pacify God's wrath by our own actions, any attempts to propitiate his wrath by our own works, looking away from these things, eschewing these things, and looking to Christ instead. By faith in Jesus, we find forgiveness for our real sins. We need to eschew any confidence in ourselves. Not in me, as we also saying earlier. Not in me. I've been loveless. I've been lawless. Not in me. But looking on Christ. Trusting that the law has no more claim on us because Jesus has done what it required. And Jesus has even satisfied its demands for its own breach. Trusting that the law has no claim on us. Trusting that God accepts us as righteous because we're clothed in the righteousness of his son who loved God and man perfectly on our behalf. Trusting that he went as the spotless lamb of God to be our substitute on the cross. And therefore there is no more remaining wrath for us. This is what the Bible means when it says faith in Christ. This is what the Bible means when it says believe. It means eschewing any confidence in ourselves, but looking instead to Christ Jesus. His love for God and neighbor, his law keeping in our place, in the place of our lovelessness and lawlessness. His death on the cross as bearing the penalty that we deserve so that we don't have to burn in hell. This is what the Bible means by faith. This is what the Bible means by belief. When it calls us to believe in Jesus, that we might be saved. Our sins, they are many. Our sins are real. But our sins may be pardoned in and through Christ Jesus. 
So look to him in faith, trusting in his substitutionary work to save you from the real guilt of your sin. So sin is lovelessness, and sin is lawlessness. This means that we're not always guilty of everything people accuse us of. If it's not loveless and it's not lawless, then it's not sin. Nor are others always guilty of everything you accuse them of. If it's not loveless and it's not lawless, then it's not sin. There is an objective standard by which we may measure ourselves and others. And there is an objective standard by which, therefore, we may reject and repudiate false witness. But by that objective standard, we are all nevertheless guilty of something. Our sin is real. And so we really need a Savior. Let us look, all of us, to Jesus for salvation from our lovelessness and from our lawlessness. Thank God for his mercy. And let's sing in response, his mercy is more. <laughs>